This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by five amazing individuals. Greg Ross, Illuminati, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, and Michael Fritchie. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? I have back with me again this week, the ungoogleable Michelangelo. Still here. And uh, we also have Mr. Christopher Ernst. Hey, everybody. And a stranger named Joshua Kutchin. Kutchin. Every every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> Crutchkin. Crutchkin. That sounds more fae-like. Crutchkin. Crutchkin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you guys have been able to talk to Michael a little before we start this. Um, we had a fascinating conversation last night that probably could have gone on for another two hours. And... Uh, Let's let's start with something you were talking about on one of your recent episodes of your podcast, which is what? Uh, self-portraits as other people. And uh, you're talking about the way we remember things. Right. The, the concept of uh, anamnesia or anemnesis, the kind of remembering from a, a previous life or a previous experience, sort of things that are left behind in, uh, in that previous chapter that then suddenly are remembered. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think specifically you were talking about uh, altered states of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Especially um, in the ayahuasca state, I noticed whenever the uh, the medicine comes on, you kind of go through this checkpoint where you have to like, st- I put it all in, in poetic terms, but you get this kind of paranormally thorough TSA search down to the cellular level where you have to surrender all of your... Uh, personal identifiers and things like this, and then you enter into the great unknown, and suddenly there are all these things from the previous times that you were there where you're like, oh, right, this Egyptian dynasty vibe, or (laughs) this like astral synth overture that's like lifting you into the stars, just to like name something random, you know, but uh, over time I started to try and like hold on to these little bits, but then always at cultural customs, by the time you get back, they like, they're like, anything to declare? And you're like, no, 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 just smuggling some interdimensional goodies across the borders. And they're like, all right, cough it up. You can, you can get these back next time. All right. So you leave your Pharaoh hat and you... (laughs) You know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's consistent with um, the sort of dr- half life of memories and things like dreams and certain trips as well. You know, mm. yeah. yeah. What's that? There's a isn't there a practice? Uh, and it would be among some Aboriginal tribe from the Australian uh, area. I don't know the specific one, but I believe that it's when you have a specific dream. The tradition is that when you uh, Upon awaking, you draw it, or uh, in in this case, it's usually they draw something in the dirt or the sand. But you you have to like uh, bring it back with you. So you have to make mm. something in order to keep it with you. Um, I'm probably butchering a little bit of the specificities of it, but I think it's something along those lines. 
It sounds, I mean, it, I could be wrong, but it sounds a lot like this Malaysian tribe known as the Sinoi Dream Tribe, or just the Sinoi mm-hmm. Tribe. I've, I call them the Sinoi mm-hmm. Dream Tribe, because they kind of set the tenets for what is now lucid dreaming. And one of the things, ah. one of the rules they have is, for instance, a child in the Western world comes out of bed and says, there was a monster chasing me. And we say, oh, sweetie, it was just a dream. Here's your fruity pebbles, you know? Whereas in the Sinoi tribe, the child says, a monster was chasing me. And they say, next time, don't run from it, confront it, slay it, and there mm-hmm. will be a gift for you. And mm-hmm. and like they always share their dreams in the morning. And they're like supposedly mm-hmm. like a peaceful tribe with very little mental illness. So it's, it mm-hmm. sounds similar to that, that kind of like immediate integration. Mm-hmm. And in the psychedelic yes. experience, w- even when there are things that I had to leave behind, behind the borders, there's still like a kind of like, like a muscle memory or like the body keeps the score kind of trip where, yeah. where through making art uh, and allowing the unconscious to take over, things will rise up like these ancient memories or distant memories that will rise up in the artwork where there's like a, a glimmer of, of remembering or of an amnesia, as it were. Yeah, yeah. that's always my, my favorite thing is whenever I find myself <clears throat> flying in a dream, my first thought is always, oh, yeah, that's that's how you do this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's never it's never being amazed at the fact that I'm flying. It's always yeah. this feeling that I'm returning to something that I know how to do. Yeah. I have these very specific dreams about specific locations um, and places that uh, um, appear uh, again and again. But moreover, and I've noticed this more recently is uh, I experienced dreams being older now uh, that there will be moments in my everyday, whatever it is I'm doing during my job or something that's, you know, very mundane where something will spark a memory of that place. And I'll not only get the sort of picture of it in my mind, but I'll also get this uh, the the feeling like or a little, a little bit of the feeling that I had in that dream. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, there's nothing like specific sparking it, but these they just they pop up every once in a while um, and are triggered by something. But I can never figure out what it is because it's so subtle. I, I can totally relate to that also, because sometimes there's very trivial memories. Like there's one, for instance, it's. Um, my father and I were on vacation in like 1996, 97 in New Zealand. And there's a moment where we had to turn the rental car around and we turned around in some like gravelly parking lot. And there's nothing that happened there, but maybe it was like a moment of coming into consciousness and like a mental snapshot being taken of like, oh, I'm alive in this moment doing a seemingly trivial thing. And there's so many moments like that where this trivial little glimmer of of this non-specific memory comes up. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I like that. Oh, we were also talking about how, how all memories mean something, even though we block out so many of them because they're mundane. Right. Yeah, we were talking about, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Eric Wargo, who uh, wrote a lot about sure. precognitive yeah. dream work and things like that. And he, he mentions like exactly like you're saying, these moments from a dream that have some correspondence throughout the day. And it's like the, these are like when we think of precognition or precognitive dreams, we think of like the big events, you know. But what he's pointing out is it's really these little events. And so maybe like that, the, you know, you slightly burning your lips on the coffee mug at work or something like that has like some some relapse into some dream texture mm, where mm-hmm. like the time loop closes and and the two worlds uh the membrane between the worlds kind of pops for a moment and, and just lets a little air out from one side to the next mm. and i also don't believe there is such a thing as a trivial thought or a trivial memory because yeah. if you're creative you can use all the parts to 
kind of divine a whole, you know? Like you can you can use every little bit of it because what is it? What is like? I mean, it's an unfinished creation that we live in. It's open ended, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. But there's like, are really there's spare parts? This isn't I- an IKEA of ideas where we get spare screws left over <laughs> at the end. But some of it's yeah, mundane, right. sort of robot stuff, you know, like Colin Wilson's idea of the robot self that you know just takes care of everything. You know, once you learn to drive, you don't really have to think about driving anymore. The robot self takes care of it. Right. And so some of that stuff I feel like is just not even really us. You know, it's yeah. not our main consciousness. It's just the stuff that's programmed in that we've programmed in or, um, you know, other stuff is programmed in. It's true. And it frees us up in a way. Like when we, there's that saying like, um, man is not a computer, but he will behave like one every chance he gets. Or man is not a machine, but he will behave like one any chance he gets. Yeah. And in a way, like for instance, yeah, you've learned how to drive. You can just do it pretty much with your eyes closed. Please don't, especially if you're listening to this in the car right now. Like this is not a truth or dare moment. <laughs> right. But, but those moments free us up for conscious introspection or introflection, you know, like where we, the, the muscle memory takes over and it frees up the mind to drift and wander and contemplate more freely. So we're now joined also by a uh, super Saxon man. Super Saxon man. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're just going to have to take that one up with Matt. I know, I know. Matt just got me <laughs> cornered with it at this point, but that's all right. Uh, yeah, glad to be here. Sorry it took me a little bit, but uh, hopefully I can jump in and catch up fast. Yeah, well, we've only been going for about 10 minutes, so you're not too, too oh, far perfect. off. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. So we were just talking about memory and uh, how all things are kind of important. It's also the, you know, I think a lot of times people live very repetitive lives. So those memories just don't really get tracked down as important. Like the brain goes, that didn't matter. You know, that's the same yeah. thing you do every day. So unless, yeah. you know, you get into a car accident on the way to work or something, it, it becomes, it just kind of gets lost. You don't, you don't make a marker for it. And I think that's when people say, oh, time feels like it goes faster as you get older. It's because you're having less novel experiences. Mm. And so you're not I, making those markers. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. I've also heard the idea that I kind of think is interesting too, is that when you're younger, you know, for example, when you're five or something, a summertime represents a significantly larger chunk of your life. Yeah. So it feels like it's longer in that sense too. I'm not sure which, but um, yeah, I mean, it, the but, old adage is true. It does seem like things get faster the older you get. But, I mean, even as, even that, I mean, as a child in the summer, you're doing a lot more novel things than you are during the school year. Yeah. Also true. Combinations novelty. I also think it, it's, it's, uh, it's like, what would it be? Comparison of scale, maybe? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's something I'm not, I'm probably not saying it right. I, you know, it, it made me think from what you were talking about a little bit about the idea of, you know, uh, the, our brain or, you know, um, our body as a whole, I guess, uh, really being in many ways a filter, uh, that is limiting our sensory information. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, it, it's the way perhaps these, you know, filters are changing. Like, you know, I think they are changing. I mean, obviously, as we know, neurochemistry in the body changes different cells every seven years on top of plenty of other things that I'm sure, you know, somebody who knows biology or like <laughs> Vuker would, would be able to talk more about. But, um, that being that filter, 
uh, I think that, you know, um, there's something to be said about these feedback loops that we're having and that we're really blocking out or, you know, we're choosing not to uh, remember or retain a great deal of information because we just don't need it. It's part of like yeah. the, you know, even you could say the built in survival mechanism that's part of the physiology of the, the human structure. Not to mention we're outsourcing a lot of our cognitive faculties and memories to our mm. devices. Yes. Like so often are we like taking notes on, so like, like in a way taking a note of something is printing it out forever, you know, like <laughs> you no longer have to reference it because it's now stored somewhere and you can relearn it that way. And it like fills up, opens up more RAM or something in yeah. your brain. So in that sense, also the technology and the uh, the communicative technologies as well, because things move so much faster now. It might also seem that the literal automation of the world has, has mm. sped things up. And I mean, that's kind of yep. the idea of um, the the technology as a means to transcend space and time. You know, like you have a car, mm -hmm. so you can travel a shorter distance, a longer distance in shorter time, or send a postal pigeon now. That's faster than uh, the telegram is faster than the postal pigeon and the email is faster than the telegram, you know, like, so everything becomes like so much speedier and the day gets filled up so much faster that our, our lives just flash by. It, it, it also yeah. pushes uh, novelty to the extreme. Because now, like, you know, back, back pre-internet, if something new, say, came up in music, it would take a while yeah. for it to, to, to proliferate out there. It might take years yeah. before other people yeah. started picking up on it and using it and incorporating it in different ways. But now, as soon as something new comes out, everyone else is incorporating it in. And then something else, someone else comes out and everyone else is incorporating it in. Mm -hmm. So it's like- it's, This is why I think, yeah, Terrence McKenna might have been right <laughs> Yeah, time wave zero thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just there's there's a, just a, a constant novelty, infinite novelty, like like Terrence said. Uh, even though he pushed it back to 2012, 2016 was probably more right. accurate. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's well ju judged against a few millennia. What's four years, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it did get start, get jump started at 2012. It's just like maybe we were expecting like. That's the moment when time goes down the drain and exponentially, you know, like you get spit out into this time wave zero. But maybe that was just the starting point, and now we're still swirling by 2016. We're dealing with all the hair clot and soap scum in the drain, and and now we're trying to clear up that mess in the uh, in the after hours of time wave zero. Anything the other Terrence McKenna wants wants to say? I think I've been out Terrence. I don't think I can contribute. Him. All right, fine. I mean, there is something to be said about this sort of degree of novelty that we're dealing with, and I don't entirely discount the possibility that we're experiencing time differently. This is sort of the sort of thing that happens at the end of Empire. Yeah, I think yours is better. I think mine's a little bit, a little bit too heightened. You get some. You get excellent. some. You got a lot of the right inflections in there, though. It's yeah. uh, it's a recognizable. It. We have a Terrence McKenna off. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a off. The winner takes all time in a small object. It's funny too, coming from the city just now, from New York City, where everything is fast paced, and you know there's a happening on every street corner. Yeah. To now being here in the countryside, where 
you can just like breathe. You can listen to the crickets. Like yeah. time dilates in a different way. And like the events, like I mentioned earlier, there was a donkey bleating in the distance that sounded like a bad saxophone player. <laughs> and then there's the clip clop of some some Amish coming by in a yep, in a horse yep. and carriage. Did you and hear it's the like, peacocks? I did see a peacock on my walk. Okay. But yeah, just like these these moments are the events, are the the novelty that presents itself. And if you live here, that's not even that novel anymore. But they're just like the cycles. The cycles yeah. are slower. Yeah, yeah. So time passes yeah, was, in a different way. I was thinking about this, and this might veer us into some some different territory. But I was watching a a really fascinating video on people of Southern Appalachia, and you know, sort of more specifically, I guess, Mid South Appalachia, because they were looking at. Uh, Western West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and looking at the level of um, poverty that's there and looking at the sort of uh, just the lifestyle that's being lived there. And then because this question has been in the back of my head for all this time, for a long time, like why is West Virginia so weird? Why does West Virginia <laughs> have a cryptid in every holler? Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure that the, you know, the, educated urbanite way to say to interpret it is to say oh well they're just a bunch of superstitious folk but i i wonder if there's something about living in accordance with more traditional lifestyles that haven't embraced this level of novelty where there is more of a sense of community where you don't have as many intrusions of the modern world because there was this one family that this particular YouTuber was interviewing in this video that I was watching where they said, you know, yeah, the internet goes out for weeks at a time. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I don't have a landline anymore, but when, when I did, it would go out for a couple of days at a time. And I, I wonder if there's something mm. about living with that relationship of not only interpersonal community, but being more in touch with the land has more to do with the level of high strangeness in a place like Appalachia than anything that we would sort of be reductionist and say, oh, it's, you know, oh, there's just a bunch of, you know, superstitious, uneducated people, which right. is also an untrue stereotype think, in and of itself. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think it needs to, because I feel like in some ways that verges on like anti-intellectualism, which I don't think it has to be. I think it has more to do with the idea, and I think you're right, and I think it has to do with entanglement, is what I would say. Mm. You're entangled with less things. There are less things that you are not dependent upon, but really think of it and that like there are less things that you are interacting with that are causing sort of, you know, you might say psychic impressions on you, subtle impressions, you know, entangling with you in a certain way. Um, because I do feel like you can live sort of a like a non-agrarian, non-rural uh, lifestyle and have that be something. It depends on your poise and your attitude. Um, mm. uh, and I do think you're right. I mean, I think you're very right about that, Josh. I, I, I think that it's, for me at least, I think it has to do with this idea of entanglement with things. I, I, I suspect that I think this maybe I think it's, it, so let's be real. It's probably a variety of factors, right? And yeah. something that I've wondered for a while is, is whether or not the level of, you know, electromagnetism that's around us has something to do with it as well. I mean, yeah, I remember, well, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember uh, in one of her, one of her books on the gin, Rosemary Ellen Guiley suggested that one of the best ways to keep the gin at bay was to just sleep with the TV on. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, it, yeah. it, you know, and so when I've had some sort of spooky moments in my life, I'll do that. And it tends to kind of calm everything down. I don't know if that's me or if that's the phenomenon, but you know, I do wonder if there's something to, to that as well. It is probably a confluence of factors. It is probably well, yeah. a confluence. You're well, right. If, if I can respond to two, that, uh, 
two separate points. Sorry, I was going to throw this out here real quick, kind of adding on to both what Chris and and Josh were saying. When uh, I was doing ethnobotany in Japan, we would take these uh, um, uh, really simple questionnaires around to different people in the countryside and in the cities, and it would be like name plants you know to have medicinal properties, name (laughs) name animals you don't like, you know whatever. And what you ended up with more often than not was if you were in rural areas. You would get more colloquial names for things and mm. usually a lot more uses, too. Um, whereas if you went to the cities and you could also look at this by age in the cities, the younger people were, the more they just listed off, uh, you know, plants and things that they learned in school. Not that relationship that they had, but it it. it Sure. Tells you that there's there's absolutely intelligence in that other uh, outside of the cities, you know, non-structured yeah. education because they, they've got all this uh, um, institutional knowledge that they've built up. But also, I think you build a framework from that sort of uh, um, localized knowledge in relationship that, you know, might make it a little easier to decipher some of these things right. uh, than you might not be able to do if you were in a city per se, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I was going to touch on to something similar, which is kind of the idea of long time and the way that maybe in those regions they're rooted in tradition and in, you know, like folkloric tradition and superstition and things like that that have been passed on through the generations. So there is this like longer time frame that they're connected to as well, which also probably changes the experience of the landscape. Your, 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 um, your encounters with the ecology is very different. Mm-hmm. And that also, I think, affects the, the way that the time is experienced. The other thing I wanted to touch on to was the idea of keeping the gin at bay with the TV on. Um, in the days when we'd run out of programming, probably you'd run into trouble once the white noise would start, you know, like poltergeist mm-hmm. style, um, mm. like EVP, <laughs> electronic voice phenomenon, but like a, a visual component of that where through the white noise, uh, there's a broadcast live from the land of the dead. It might not be a gin, but it might not be nothing either. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's sort of, Um. I mean, I've noticed this because I've slept with a sound machine now for, mm. Lord, mm. probably 10 plus years. Um, And, you know, it's always interesting to me how I can sort of matrix the sound machine and find voices and phrases. And if mm-hmm. I think of a different phrase, I can sort of make the sound machine <laughs> sound a different way. But it, it probably, I'm not even sure if it has something to do with the technology as it does to allow you to sort of go into a mental soft focus where you can sort of pick things yep. up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this is all sort of very reminiscent of um, the work of Ernesto Di Martino, um, Italian anthropologist who speculated that, you know, cultures that believe in magic have strange, have more, have stranger things happen to them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, so it's it's probably, as we've said, a couple of different things. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And and I, I like what uh, Michelangelo is talking about with that, that long time, because, you know, when you have a, a, a local name for, you know, say a root or something like that, like even if you don't know the explicit history of how that came to be, valuable to the people around you, you still, because you're a part of that culture, get a little bit uh, of, you know, an implicit uh, meaning behind all of it. Whereas if you learned about it simply in a textbook, it's just a term. Right. 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 And and I would, I might even speculate that I might even speculate that like that these 
folk remedies are capable of doing different things for people who grew up with that tradition because there's yes. more of a, a Rupert Sheldrake style morphic resonance sure. around them. Totally. You know? mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I just yeah. I, I spent the last two years living almost two years living in the Mexican jungle where I'd encounter lots of you know plants and mostly animals and insects that I'd never seen before and. Rather than figuring out what they're called, we would just name them <laughs> as we saw fit. It's just like another layer of colonialism. Uh, and then oftentimes I would like, you know, come up with a description and put it in the en- in the search engine and try to figure out what it was so that I have like some idea beyond watching its behavior of like what's already established. Like, is this one poisonous? Should I be playing with this centipede? You know, this sort of thing. Um and then you start to learn, you know, there's sometimes the names that I would pick for it would actually be what they were named already in the English language, at least, nice. at least you know, nice. uh, like, you know, uh, a woolly caterpillar. Oh, yeah, that's called a woody, woolly caterpillar. Um, and then you find out like, oh, that is the earlier form of a leopard moth or something, you know, or these little right. like you're sitting in this outdoor toilet and you start noticing these little pumpkin seeds moving across the ground with this little finger coming out of them pulling them around and you're like what the heck is that and you 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 start you describe it and you look it up and it's like that is the pupa of a uh, particular kind of moth and then it's like okay that's a better deal and then you look further and it's like oh it has a latin name too and it almost feels like that was the name used to invoke these things into existence you know the the first name um but which all they all sound like um Harry Potter spells or something, you know. <laughs> morphos, like many laos. That'll bring out the morphos, you know. The blue. I, I, I like what you, what you alluded to, though, about the name sort of bringing it into existence. Because I was, I was um, subbing with a band probably about a year ago now, and uh, subbing for their bass player, and, and he was suffering some sort of ailment that the doctors just couldn't figure out. Where he was having these body pains, and they were taking spinal taps, and it was. A terrifying moment because I obviously felt for the guy, but it's it's one of those things where we like to think that we have everything cataloged, but like even things that we have a sense for, like, you know, um, something like multiple sclerosis or something like that's just a name that we've applied to this condition that we've seen in multiple people. And it, it tends to behave in one way, but there are always these outliers that sort right. of fudge the boundaries of what these things are. And if we really were faced with the, the lack of, of names of things, we would be, yes. you know, a, a completely awash. Like it's it, language is here to keep us sane. That's a sort sort of a it is a safety idea. blanket, isn't it? In yeah. a way, like I've I've thought of this. I versed it as um, what masks the alien is the familiarity of language, and exactly like you're saying, yes. like once you strip that familiarity away, and you're like, what are we really dealing with? How does it really behave when it colors outside those lines? Like there's a lot of interesting territory. And like, for instance, like a disease that cannot be quickly diagnosed or they're figuring it out. Now you're living in this liminal space, which is magical in its own right, because you're in a state of pure possibility and potentiality where it could go any which way. Like you don't know if you're facing mortality. So you start moving in that direction naturally. And then, you know, the diagnosis comes around and it turns out it's something that's, there's a cure for it. It's, you know, it fits in this box and you can, you can return to your baseline state, but you've still, you've gone through the motions of, of facing these possible realms, you know? Yeah. This, this brings up something and sorry, I'll, I'll step back and let other people jump in the conversation. But, um, 
having speaking English as a second language, I know you've been here for a while. Um, but did you did you notice any personality shifts as you as you became more fluent with a different language? Because that's I've talked to a couple of my friends who originally spoke Spanish growing up who have become fluent in English, and, and they said that they, they noticed that there's something different about themselves when they're in sort of immersed in this other idiom. 100%. I have thought about it a lot, obviously. Like growing up in the Netherlands, Dutch is my first language, and it was taught to me through my environment, you know, through my parents, through education. It's like this kind of um, biological molecular telepathy or something, you know, that's like the first way that we're, we learn a language. English, I learned through fiction. I learned it by watching TV and I had a talent for mimicry, so I picked up on it. And by the time I was like six years old, I spoke English almost fluently, but I would say things like, let me loose instead of let me go. Or I would uh, sing the theme song to Transformers, but I would sing about robots in the skies because I didn't know about <laughs> yeah, this guys. Yeah. Whereas now I, I've robots I've, eat the eyes. Yeah, <laughs> now I've self-diagnosed myself with something called dyslexia, which is a kind of ecstatic dyslexia where I mishear things, but I, it's become a creative um, way to play with the kind of uh, the Play-Doh of the present that is our language, and so. At some point, I feel like there was this incubation period of my English self fueled by fiction that was more of a spirit language because it's it's fueled by fiction. You know, it's 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 unlimited. It's um, you know, mm. the like Wiley e. Coyote universe is part of that. Like animations, uh, TV, anything that happened beyond the screen was kind of this unlimited spirit realm. It's the closest place that our our secular civilization, our secular society, has to a spirit world. Is what's on broadcast on the other side of the screen. And so I think a part of me and why I came to the United States was to be a filmmaker is to want to strike through the screen and walk on the other side amongst these like, you know, these gods, these deified culture makers. And so I feel at some point that unleashed this almost fictitious self, you know, this like performative person that um, to some degree were personality is performative. But I think I took it to 11 <laughs> in that regard. And there's, and there's a malleability in being able to switch between languages and, and uh, counter-reference them because the Dutch language is very much akin to Old English. So there are these like comparative etymological um, root points where it's easier to like deconstruct mm. a language and then reconstruct, which I think is why I'm playful with the word. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, what you, what you said um, reminds me of <laughs> there's this... Uh, I believe he's an Italian uh, musician, Adriano Celentano, who has this song called "Prison Colonists and Anchuzal," and it's um it's sung in in it's supposed to sound like English, but it's not really English. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great song. There's, great. there's a short film like that too called Squirrel, like S. K W E R L yes. squirrel and it's the whole time they're they're talking talking like the sound not sound like American language but not they're not actually <laughs> even the words. <laughs> it's pretty great. You know, there, there's plenty of death metal bands where you're going, wait, is this uh, not not in English? Wait, I, yeah. I don't think I'm understanding any of this. And even if you're listening to Radiohead or something where he's kind of mumbling the words, like for the longest time. I loved these songs, but I thought he was saying something else. And when I read the lyrics and figure out that's not what he was saying, I just wrote a lyric. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, the uh, like when you watch something that's subtitled because you don't know the language. At a certain point, you will 
at least for me, I'll feel like, oh, I'm understanding it. Like my, my brain forgets it's not understanding what it's hearing because I'm reading it along with it. Right. And then I'll like start looking at my phone and then after a moment, I'll be like, I don't understand what he just said. I actually have to watch the screen. Yep. Yeah, I do. You that read, yeah. read television. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, that, or, you know, when I was growing up, my, my family took me to see Shakespeare and I was always, every time I go in, I'd have this like, not anxiety, but I'd be sort of dreading it because I'm like, I'm not going to understand a word that they're saying. And, and my dad would always say, give it, give it a couple of minutes. And if, if the acting is good, you'll totally understand mm-hmm. what's going on. Even mm-hmm. if you don't understand every word. I appreciated Titus. Well, I guess it was just called Titus, not Titus Andronicus, the movie that Julie Taymor made with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, that was sure. One of the Damn. first times I watched a Shakespeare adaptation that I understood what was going on and could even like at that point tap into the actual the poetry of the language because it was so well executed. Because mm. mm-hmm. before that, it was always just... You know, it's also the thing about stage plays. They don't subtitle them. True. (laughs) That's true. That's true. There's no interpreter in the sidelines giving you. uh, But now you could probably get your phone to be basically a babble fish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I've got some friends that read, uh, you know, books that way from other countries where they just do the, you know, visual translate over their Mm. whatever it is. Oh, yeah. You know, and I forget that you can even do that. (laughs) There's probably some things lost in translation as well. Oh, sure. Oh, I no mean, doubt. but that's going to happen even if a human does it. Yeah, true. Which is also where the fun happens a lot of times, you know, when you like, there's like a homonym or something and you happen to catch the wrong one and that just changes the whole context of the thing. Right. And I mean, it, and it, it, I'm Berliner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am a donut. <laughs> it's, um, and it's one thing when you're translating languages that all have the same root language, like Latin, versus mm-hmm. when you move to, like, say, Asiatic languages, mm-hmm. which have completely different structures, and then you're translating them into other languages, yeah. which is the, uh, the whole thing about, you know, something being made in China, and they chant- translate the Chinese to English, and you're reading it going, well, this was clearly made oh, in yeah, China, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not doing any controls. I love that. That's one yeah. of my favorite things. There's like It's called like English.com or something yeah, like something that. Like that. <laughs> Some of the yes. funniest stuff. There was, it, a, well, there was an episode of news going. radio back in the day where Jimmy James, the, the head of the radio station, put out a book and it flopped. But then it got translated into Japanese and it did great. <laughs> so his idea was, yeah, well, let's right. translate the Japanese version back into English. <laughs> And he gets it and he's doing a reading and it's just ridiculous. And it's like, oh my God, I think this is one of the funniest episodes ever. Yeah, it's like the Monty Python joke <laughs> that they use to kill the Germans and then the Germans try to reverse engineer it. <laughs> That's right. But they, they don't have the delivery for it. <laughs> There's another great example of... Uh, Joe Rogan are just fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was thinking the same yeah. thing. It's like, wow, he had hair and was, yeah. he was like a Tony Danza at the time. <laughs> kind so. of, yeah. When Rogan was a Danza. Stephen Root and Stephen Root, yeah, and some of the yeah, some people whose whose names I don't know, Phil but Hartman. I see, yeah, oh, that's right, Phil Hartman was in there. Yeah, yeah. And a, another yeah. thing, I was I was thinking, I wonder if any of you have ever seen the movie Genghis Blues. Genghis Blues. I have, yeah. yeah. No. So it's about Paul Pena, who was a blind blues musician living in San Francisco. He was famous because he had written this song, um, Jet Airliner, for Jefferson Starship, I think. Mm. Okay. Uh, and leaving on a jet plane. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. Leaving on a jet plane. Yeah. Um and so he you know, he was kind of famous for that, but he was living in obscurity, he's a blind guy, he's listening to the radio, and one day he hears throat singing from Tula Tuva in a little Mongolian country. Yeah. That even Genghis Khan saw it as their own little sovereign little nation. 
And uh, he was so taken in by this that he wanted to learn more. Uh, and, and he started learning to throat sing and he wanted to join their competition in, in Tula Tuva. But to write them a letter, like he couldn't write in Tuvan. So he went to the library and he could only find it translated. He had to like translate from Russia, from Tuvan to Russian to English in Braille. <laughs> Yeah. And he did oh, it. Wow. And then he ended up going to their country and and joining in their competition. And it's like that movie is a triumph of the human spirit, man. Yeah. It's really moving. Huh. Yeah. The effort he went through. The uh and throat singing has now caught on big time in metal music oh, over that's the last cool. few years. What's the it's the Who, right? The Who is the big one right now. Before that it the was Ten, Tenger yeah. Cavalry. Cavalry. Not the W-H-O, the H-U. H-U, yeah. They're, they're the big yeah. ones right now because the main guy from Tengar Cavalry uh, is gone. Yeah. Wow. So, but they were the ones, they were from Mongolia and came here. And he, I think he was the only original member that came here. And then he built a band. In fact, uh, they're one of my friend's favorite bands and he ended up playing with them. He ended up being the bass player and playing Carnegie Hall with them. Wow. That's very cool. I could see it was, how it was a jet, jet airliner for Steve Miller band that Paul Pena. And I only know okay. that because the dude was born like, uh, I have a lot of family in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and he was born there. He was like from there. Uh, and so I remember, I knew that I, I wanted to get it right for him because I knew it was a, a wrong song that I attributed to them. And, and the thing too, about like translating and stuff is that it is so hard to always get the right context. So when you're looking at really ancient cultures, I mean, you take something like yeah. the Bible, how many times has that been translated, retranslated, re-edited? Right. So it's like, we, we have no idea what the original really said or what the real meaning behind some of this stuff was. Because it's been it's been through the grinder, really. Yeah, it's when you think of like the way like cancel culture nowadays. When we look back at a movie from the seventies and we're like, "That you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. That was wrong." And you're like, "It's the same thing." Like every time the the Bible or some old text gets translated, it gets updated to the modern cultural yeah. yep. mindset. Yeah, and yeah, and, yep. and it's yeah. like a game of telephone where then by the end of it. You know, we're, we're dealing with something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is unfortunate. That's why it's interesting when you, if you look back, because, I mean, some of the stuff that was found very recently, and I'm not talking about the um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but like the Nag Hammadi Library, I mean, yeah. that's that was like in the 50s, I think, right? And I want to say there's been stuff more recently, too. Even more recent, yeah, yeah. And but, so a lot of the, I mean, you know, King James and all that stuff, you know, basically the 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 Bibles that people were working on, you know, or working from since, gosh, for the past several hundred years, you know, are, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say are really, you know, uh, quite, have quite gone through, have gone through quite the game of telephone. On you know, the gospel of Judas was, you know, yeah. Yeah. something that I always found fascinating. And, um, well, and the apocrypha, you know, I was, I yeah. will never forget the first time I was in an Episcopal church and I'm like, there's extras like where, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah. There's something in here called Bell and the Dragon. Like this is this yeah. is kind of awesome. Yeah. There, uh, what's what's the one that uh, the Book of Enoch that they tried to wipe out and they ended right. up Book finding three different yeah. copies. You know. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 interesting how much these things change and how how that that subtleness of language can cause issues too. Yeah. What's the Hitchhiker's Guide joke where where like they utter a phrase and it somehow ends up on another planet and that planet, that phrase means we declare war or something <laughs> and the aliens fly all the way here, but they're really, you know, the size of a fly and they're immediately eaten by a dog. And that was the end of the invasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think I brought this guy up on the show before, but yeah, I'm a big fan of Dan McClellan. 
Um, no, no relationship to uh, Mike Clellan, Dan <laughs> McClellan, McClellan. Right. Uh, but he's a, a biblical scholar and really gets into like cultural context as best he can and the original words used and like the differences between meanings to, to just give you better context. Yeah. Um, just about any time he posts something like I'll just sit and watch it, you know, and it, I don't remember half of what he puts up, but it's always something where I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. You know, learn something new about translation again. Right. In, in our conversation yesterday, Soraya and I were talking a little bit about Julian Jaynes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, the bicameral mind origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral Mm -hmm. mind, um, in which he's basically plowing through the Iliad as one of the first written down texts. It was originally, of course, like an oratory incantation. But then once it was written down, it also went through many translations. And he was looking for um, evidence of subjective consciousness within that. Right. But all the words that we now associate with a subjective mind or soul or, or something of that nature were words that had more concrete meanings, like things like schizophrenic, freeness part of that meant like was like your your lungs or your breath or something like that or Hmm. uh, noose was also was like it all came down to either like a body part an organ or the breath and so over time as these translations changed people started adjusting it to the modern mindset and the modern vernacular um so yeah it's another example of how kind of history gets falsified through these filters of um, of translation. And that's another thing. Okay. I mean, depending on how you view the world affects your language, your, your relationship with other people. And we do not view the world the same way they did 2,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago. Right. Um, and it may be physical differences that, that may cause that. There may be... Um, you know, like the idea of uh, the great year where there, there could be another, another factor in that raises and lowers our consciousness over a 20,000 year period. What is it, the great year? The great said? year or the Yuga cycle. Mm. So it's, it's a cyclic idea. What's, what's the, cause there's two versions of the Yuga cycle. Chris probably knows this better. This is like a Hindu. Hindu yeah. Yuga, there's so the, I'm sorry. What's that? Uh, I was just asking if this is like the Hindu. Yes. Cycles yeah. like the Kali yeah. Yuga. Yep. Yep. All that. Yep. Okay. Right. <laughs> Which is many people think that actually has to do with Kali, the goddess Kali, and it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the goddess Kali. It has to do with a demon named Kali. Hmm. Um, uh, Aren't they the same? You know, no, very different. Really? Yeah. No, Kali, the the goddess of death, is a very different thing, and the demon Kali, because death is not seen as something that's bad. Yeah. Um. Uh. It's this. This is a demon uh, named Kali, which is this sort of you know wanton destruction. Um. You know, uh, the Kali Yuga is the Iron Age. It's the age of ignorance and you know, uh, evil and stuff like that. Anyway. Yeah, there's two different um, sort of interpretations of it. One is this very convoluted interpretation, which sort of equates, you know, what is put down in the Vedas as normal years um, as being, you know, uh, holy God years, which, you know, uh, makes it stretches it out so that it's these really, you know, huge spans of time. But then there's a more, uh, I would say, I forget there's a name for it. It's not like the revisionist or something, but you can look. uh, There's a couple of... um, uh, like scholars in India that have written about it recently. I think on Graham Hancock's site, whatever you think about him, there's a link to one of them because uh, it's a pretty salient article from an academic there. And it's shorter and it's, um, you know, essentially like it, it, it hooks up with, the, you know, the 26,000 uh, year uh, cycle yeah. of the earth, the 12,000 year, you know, um, cycle that we see 
uh, sort of happening that going going back to the younger Dryas, uh, you know, sort of being the start of these different cycles. Uh, and it makes a lot more sense, essentially, from sort of a, a like a, a I want to say mathematical, yes. but from sort yeah. of a, a logical standpoint in terms of what things have been happening. But within that, there's the idea of cycles within cycles. So you have like little Kali Yugas and big mm. Kali Yugas, and there's like the, you know, Mahapralaya, which is this huge thing where essentially the breath, you know, you, uh, it's the disillusion of, uh, of reality where the breath of Brahma sort of gets brought back in and essentially we go, nothing exists for a short amount of time. And then the cycle begins again. Mm. The cycles within cycles also, of course, again, brings up time wave zero and McKenna's idea of like, you can feel this as you're vacuuming your room. I have a saying, Rome falls nine times an hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the idea of like Finnegan's Wake, which he always talked about um, as just like a man's journey across town to get a can of kidney beans. But underneath that is this whole epoch of time that plays out. That's like the whole span of the Odyssey mm. uh, or of the Iliad, yeah. I think, of the Odyssey, I think. Underneath You've that, had a yeah. couple of the guys that have talked about this in terms of the actual like, uh, what was it? What's his name? Um, Walter Cruttenden. Uh, yeah, Walter Cruttenden. Yeah. yeah. Because he specifically talks about this, you know, well, uh, Wal- and Walter matches up the great, great year, the Yuga cycle and the procession of the yeah. equinox yeah. and the idea that, that both of these, both the great year and the Yuga cycle talks about consciousness raising, yeah. uh, toward the top part of the cycle and dropping toward yep. the bottom part of the cycle. Hmm. Um, yep. and he relates it to possibly being in a binary star relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his pick is serious, which yep makes the most sense to me as well uh because there's some very unusual things about Sirius. so the idea that like um you know i look at robert shock's work that he did he did a study on on psychics and found that laboratory uh psychics like when a psychic is tested in the laboratory they do better during high solar activity than low solar activity (laughs) like consistently across the board so his his comment was well Either this is real or there's been a conspiracy since the beginning of psychical <laughs> research for psychics to right. only do good during high solar activity. Right. Yeah. Um, Was this book called The Psychic Cycle? Because that would have been a good title for it. <laughs> no, it's not. I cycle forget what it's psychics. called. But, um, so if you're adding in another sun coming closer mm-hmm. to us, that might be raising our consciousness in a different way that our single sun can't do. You don't know. I mean, because we don't know. We don't know what yeah. all this, how the, all this stuff influences. I, I think us. of that often. The idea of like, yeah, like two moons, two suns, like just how that would change our whole experience and the whole makeup of our yeah. being. Yeah, yeah. Laird Scranton has something similar in his more recent books, but his he looks at it from a different angle. I think where he's saying that there's like essentially like there's something about our proximity to the 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 spirit realm or something like that does anybody know what i'm talking about yeah he but he also talks about us being in a a multi-star system that that moves around a a common center of gravity along with sirius i think he said bernard's star and one of the other ones as well so his is a little, little more for you know expanding on the idea a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew it was sort of another version of it, but he specifically goes in. It's there's this idea of like there's this other world that we're coming, like the world of spirit that we're coming into contact right, with or something. Right. I'll have to go back and look at that. But yeah, yeah. it's it's one universe unraveling. So so Laird takes his That's ideas it. from the Dogons. 
Right. That's that's really all I know of Sirius is that the Dogon knew about this so, dwarf star, yes. binary star yep. system yep. long before we had telescopes or anything like so that. So Laird too. Scranton did a deep dive into their, their stuff because there, there were a couple of anthropologists who stayed with them and they were brought into sort of the inner sanctum. This is how they found out about the star stuff and all this other stuff that they understood which matches up with a lot of modern science. Mm. Their explanation is they were taught by these beings who came from not so the much Namo. another... Pl- huh? The Namo. Yeah. The Namo. They were the dolphin-headed people, right? Fish-headed like people, Fish yeah. Headed, okay. Fish-headed, yeah. And so, but the other... Them coming from Sirius, that was a, a total sort of like twist on the guy who wrote the book about it. Um, it's more that, that, that we move in toward this other universe. And he says there's, they, they claim there's two universes, the one we're in where we have imperfect knowledge, but ability to act. And this other universe, that's like the other side of our universe where they have perfect knowledge, but inability to act. That reminds me of, that. of Vim Vendor's, um, right. yep. uh, wings of desire. Ich bin ein Berliner again. Yeah, that's yeah. the the story that was later remade. Talk about translations or lost in translation. Later remade as City of Angels. <laughs> they had With Nick, Nicholas they, Cage. Yeah, right? they had yeah. they had Nick Cage in the original, and they got Nick Cage in the in the huh. remake. But it's about angels that have perfect knowledge but are unable to act, and so they they hang around Berlin, especially around libraries, and they hear people's thoughts as they're reading poetry because that gives them a sense of what it would be like to feel and to be able to act. Or they can hmm. put their hand on somebody's back when they're thinking of committing suicide, but they can't do anything about it unless they themselves take this kind of like this plunge to earth. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Yeah. So that's the immediate correlation I get from that. I yeah, mean, but continue yeah, on that. And and so Laird's idea is that the our interaction with the other is our interaction with this other universe. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're closer to it, and then we move away from it, and it may very well be as we move closer to these other stars, we're actually yep. getting in a closer proximity to that universe. That's interesting to us. It would be interesting to compare that um, that sort of data, that sort of the sort of space weather, so to speak, to a relatively obscure UFO book that I've always found really interesting. It's a Kevin Randall book called The October Scenario. Oh, I have that somewhere. Yeah, it's it's his his basic thesis was that um the number of humanoid encounters in 1973 represents the only quote unquote true UFO flap in history. Um and that the, you know everything else is kind of just residual. Yeah. Um, but that, that, you know, and it would be interesting to see if we were perhaps, you know, in a period of solar activity during that time or not. I'm sure somebody could easily do that now. I just don't have the, I don't exactly know what to look for, but that's, that's interesting. To, to bring it back down from the stars into a more speculative earthbound realm. Um, we briefly, Soraya, we briefly touched on to Anthony Peak yesterday yes. and his uh, cheating the ferryman theory, which I'm looking at it now through the lens of this binary star system and these the others with perfect knowledge and no action. Yeah. So he has this notion basically of death as a scientific impossibility. So for instance, take the metaphor of a black hole. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you were to pass through the black hole, past the event horizon to the outside world, it would look like you're lingering at the ledge, yep. but you yourself are actually traveling through it. Well, with death, it's different because you watch the person go through the black hole, but for their subjective experience, they're still in life because they're now going through this life review that is this sort of immersive simulated experience, which is kind of like what we're in right now. Right. But the twist on it is, is that the part of you that has lived your life already, 
the perfect being with perfect knowledge, uh, is what he calls the daemon, is kind of in this parallel universe where as you, the Edelon, Joe Schmo going about his day, is going about his day, going through life again through this eternal cycle that I call a reincantation to give a kind of play on reincarnation where yeah. it's life is a cover song with the themes played at slight variations. But now, for instance, you come upon this cataclysmic moment in your life and your daemon, the perfect self that has no way to act but can confide in you through synchronicity, through deja vu, through these moments of intuition, basically piercing through the membrane and, and whispering to you and kind of change the variation on the chords that you're playing in your life to take a different route. And so you get these kind of like cycles upon cycles, life after life after life. Yeah. So I was thinking yeah. of that now in the sense of the Damon and the Edelon dyad as binary stars. In that mm. sense, there's yeah, like yeah, yeah. the one star, the little star echoing it. We started this program with echoes, echoes, echoes. And <laughs> here we are again. <laughs> well, Josh, you've written a, a short book on... Uh, connection of the paranormal and death chapter uh, right yeah, <laughs> yeah just a it can be read in an afternoon on it's, like it's dilated, like dilated dilated time afternoon yeah, yes have, exactly the longest day night cycle maybe that <laughs> afternoon an afternoon in norway yeah 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 till sunset um, yeah there's there's something to it there's something uh, and, and, you know it's it's kind of a cop-out because why wouldn't all of our mysteries be tied to the greatest mystery of all but um I don't know if there really is all these connections between death and various aspects of the paranormal, or if it's just that we've sort of appended that big mystery to all these smaller mysteries, um, comparatively smaller mysteries, I guess. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely, we definitely believe that there's a connection between death and all these things for sure. Someday I'll talk about it on where did the road go? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm almost done with the first book. Okay. <laughs> It takes, it takes a minute. Well, I, I like to the idea of these two, let's say, parabolas, these two lines of life and death that are intersecting. And I think at the intersection is where the parable happens, which is in life, life is death's dream kingdom dressed up in forms. And so it's like this reflection where uh, we get to symbolically experience the death realm, but there is really no separation in that sense. I mean, it's a very rudimentary thesis. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel it. like we're already there. Mm hmm. But I do like the video game analogy. I mean, your true self is the one playing the video game. Your character in the video game is your incarnation here. Right. right. So like when the character in the game dies, it doesn't affect you. You're still you. You, you can go back. You can go to your last save point and continue on. But there's no, uh, there's no, like that character only knows what it's ex experiencing. It doesn't know what you're experiencing, but you're controlling yeah. it. So you're giving it that suggestion, go this right. way. You know, I learned from last time, don't, don't do that. That kills you, yeah. you mm -hmm. know? Right, right. But you're not any different whether that character is alive or dead. But what about the right. controller beyond you? <laughs> well, that's it. How far does it go? And the controller beyond you. And the controller beyond <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, as as a metaphor, right? I mean, I've 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 voiced my problems with simulation theory as a literal idea before, mm. um, but as a metaphor, yeah, I think it's highly parsimonious. What are your What are your objections? My objections are that people literally think that we're plugged into some sort of computer simulation or some yeah, sort of right. way ah, of simulation. Okay. And, okay. and if I'm there is, totally my, with you, Josh. yeah, my, my contention is that if there is a reality that supersedes or that is above this one, um, then by definition it's unknowable. So that could be anything. We could be anything. This yeah, simulation yeah, yeah, that we yeah. this simulation that we're sitting yeah. in 
doesn't have to be generated by silica and you know circuit boards. It could be some sort of you know uh, well the the Hindu concept of Maya, right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's yeah. So that so that's that's always my caveat is that. When people go full matrix with it, I'm like, okay, you're kind of right. missing the point, I think. I would even wager yeah. that instead of us being in a simulation, we have a simulation in us. And when you think of Maya, which means illusion, but it also means magic or play, mm. that to me sounds like what language does. And that's something that exists within us and media, in especially as language, is that we have this kind of um, yeah. mind as media through which we experience the world but that is not it's it's the map and not the territory and so that is a, right. a simulative experience where each of us have slight variations on them where we're not even in entirely the same reality we can communicate some semblance of significance to one another through these small mouth noises and through various symbol systems but <laughs> there's still so there's still so many different universes coexisting like to bring it back to like a, an ayahuasca ceremony, it feels oftentimes like if you're in a room with six people, there's six rooms in there and everybody's off on their own experience, like their own simulation blossoms into an entire world of, of experience. That's it, I think it's really important that you brought up those different uh, definitions for the term Maya because I think it gets misunderstood a lot and mm -hmm. uh I, I think that the real you know the core of it is this idea of play and that you know i've heard it described as you know it's it's uh you know infinite the like the infinite uh everything that is creation is this is this is its play like and then even saying it is a wrong way of like trying to describe it's not those aren't the correct biased. pronouns <laughs> for the entirety yeah, right. <laughs> right yeah what boy yeah, have pronoun god um and but it's that it's yeah there's this play and there's even a term which is more specific which is leela l e e l a uh like the uh you know one-eyed um uh spacefaring adventurer from futurama uh leela uh, that okay. means play it's divine play and it's this idea of you know creation being this you know whimsical effort or creation to know itself <laughs> right right that that is that that's similar to the vedanta philosophy right yeah very much so which i i've termed that the did deity it's like a deity with dissociative identity disorder the mm. one who is lonely as the one and only so it shatters and fragments itself into a million parts to be able to talk to itself like we are doing right now in this room <laughs> yeah with a few yeah, disembodied yeah, voices kind of. coming in <laughs> And losing but itself think, in, th in, in play, like uh, Alan Watts would I point out, like an actor losing itself in, in the role right. that it's playing. Yeah. But I think even the idea of like persona, the idea of the individuality is not there. It's more, it's, if you really get down to the heart of Vedanta, I think it's talking about like a system. It's something that is, it's multiple. It's not like, uh, not like um, some God cloud. You know what I mean? Mm. There is, it is not a singular being that uh, it is beyond singularity. There's sort of like this, this uh, basically beyond understanding, like it's everything and nothing at the same time. Well, it's like the, like the paradoxes in the Nag Hammadi, which you brought up earlier that yeah. I, I am, I am many, I am one kind yes. of, uh, yeah, but completely. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Quick mid show break here and uh, contact info for the show. Where did the road go.com has everything has all the links to all our social media and such. And uh, you can become a patron by clicking on the Patreon link. You get extra stuff every week and the shows a week early and, and you know, the occasional special thing 
here and there. My recommendation for this week uh, is actually a TV show. It's on Apple TV. It's called Invasion. It just started its second season. I haven't watched the second season yet. I've only watched the first season, but as far as Alien Invasion movies go, this one's really good. Or movies, TV series, however you want to put it, stories. Um, this one's really good. It does not have the traditional um, anthropomorphic sort of uh, aliens coming in, and there's consciousness aspects, and there's, there's all kinds of interesting stuff. So I definitely recommend checking that out. It's just called Invasion. I think the first season was 2022. The second season's coming out now. Like I said, I haven't started it yet because I've got to wait till there's a few out before I go watch it. But that's my recommendation for this week. All right, back to the show. You're listening to Where Did the Road Go? And I have, it uh, looks like, Joshua Cutchin and uh, Super Inframan. I'm sorry, Super Saxon Man. Uh, <laughs> Christopher Ernst. And in studio with me, uh, the ungoogleable Michelangelo. And we're talking about really, you know, surface level stuff here. Plowing the surface of the depths, skipping <laughs> stones. Um, I'm sorry. Do you want to do Does have- Super Saxon Man have anything to do with Sutton Who? That's what I'm wondering. With Sutton Who? No. I, uh, although I have seen the the uh, exhibit a couple of times. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Sutton Who is where the Super Saxons were. Oh. Josh, do you want to talk about Sutton Who? Yeah, if memory serves, it's the it's the one of the largest, or um, might even be the largest, uh, collection of Anglo-Saxon artifacts. Oh, um, okay. Found in Suffolk, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, is this the one that the miniseries was made about? They they did a they did a Netflix mm-hmm. show on it. Yeah. Um, and the Netflix show didn't really talk from I, I haven't seen it but from what i've heard of it doesn't really talk about it's not a netflix show or, or it was a major release either way from what i've heard the, the show didn't really address the fact that they sort of got a suspicion that there might be artifacts there because there were like ghost horses <laughs> and things like that yeah they, right. they, they did suggest but, some yeah. paranormal stuff though and that she had a feeling that there were things there but they wouldn't investigate it and finally this one archaeologist came out and did the dig and found stuff, and then they basically uh, blackballed him and took credit for finding it. And as Josh pointed out, it's very near Rendlesham. It's like four miles from Rendlesham. Really? <laughs> oh, it's really that close? I had no idea. Well, I mean, Su- Suffolk's kind of weird to begin with, um, uh-huh. from what I understand. And, you know, you're dealing with, with you know, England, so there's not a lot of real estate to begin with. But, yeah, I found that really interesting that... that uh, you know, and Rendlesham is sort of a weird place anyway. It's not just yeah. the Rendlesham mm-hmm. forest incident with the UFO that, you know, may or may not be as, as truthfully presented as it has been. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there's a story of the, one of the, um, I believe it was the Ralph of Coggeshall, uh, Chronicon Anglicanum story about them catching a, basically a Bigfoot <laughs> in their nets while fishing comes from there and there are stories of you know ghost women and sort of the devil dogs that are associated with the fey folk all from rendlesham forest and yes sutton mm. sutton who i think is like about four miles away if memory serves yeah and sutton who goes back like it's like five thousand years old they have you know they have found artifacts that you know people have been doing stuff since you know very far back in that area and i believe there is like a entire ship buried there somewhere yes yeah, there's a couple of cemeteries. Yeah, there's a couple of cemeteries, and if I'm remembering right, is the 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 ship the one that they keep under like mist? Uh, because if it dries out, it'll disintegrate. Um, or am oh, I? I, I may know. be conflating two things there, but 
but I've seen the boat too. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting place. The Dig was the name of the series, and it was on Netflix. Okay, I thought it was pretty yeah. good, actually. Well, that's a cool burial mounds there. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, Sutton. Who is, of course, I mean that you're dealing with the borders of of Rendlesham Forest, but it looks like if you just plot a straight line between the two points on Google Maps, it's like three point six nine miles. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, um, which no I. I obviously find interesting for paranormal death related reasons. But yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the whole, the whole sort of supernatural undercurrent of the Sutton who, um, uh, excavation speaks to the fact that, uh, these things, no matter how much we wish to deny their existence, play a very important and, uh, very heavy hand. Sometimes I would argue, in a lot of our advancements. I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, Carrie Mullis seeing talking uh, raccoons and discovering, <laughs> you know, uh, DNA sequencing under the influence of LSD. It's, it's, it even creeps into the, the um, humanities, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, there was so much stuff we talked about yesterday on the, in the car and I don't remember all of it. Was it regarding folkloric dimension? Well, yeah, just all of it. I yeah. mean, we should, I wish I had my recorder with me. Yeah. Well, some of these moments, they're, uh, they're, we have to play back the Akashic Records or something like that. <laughs> it's recorded somewhere in the airwaves. And then we're back to memory. But the, yeah, the folkloric dimensions are something that's always um, really interested me in regards to also like the genius loci or the, the resident spirit of a land. So as you're, you're talking about the Sutton Hoo, so like for instance, my father worked at a, uh, as a director of a Norwegian plasterboard company and he would bring me back these little ugly little woodcut trolls from Norway. And then one day I got to go to Norway and I stepped into those woods and the feeling of those woods was the same feeling of those little trolls. Like this is an expression, a cultural expression of the soil in that sense. And um, Absolutely, yeah. And and this is something I'm very interested in also in my time in Mexico. Um, So the artwork that I do is largely uh, uses the technique of pareidolia, which is the... You know, the, the sure. perceptual tendency towards meaning, finding meaning in random stimuli. So like the faces in the clouds or Jesus on toast are the examples I like to give. Um, and so I, I would start to encounter beings in kind of the ele- elemental interface of the environment in the jungle or in the, uh, the stones that were used to build the walls in the place where I lived. And the aesthetic of these, and also as they came through in my art, I found later on were very akin to, for instance, the idea of the Alushas or the Chenekes. Alushas is more the Mayan lore. Chenekes are more the Aztec lore of these kind of gnomes or goblins or similar to what in uh, mm-hmm. Spanish would be the Duende, these kind of like mm-hmm. gnomes, these like um, mischievous protecting beings. I know that either the Cheneque or yep. the Alushas are also considered like golems. Like they would build mm. a little clay figurine and then if they oh. would come back and it's gone, they know that it's now alive and it's protecting the place. But after seven years, you got you to gotta, uh, board up their, their hole where they live or otherwise they turn evil, this kind of thing. Like the thing <laughs> that protects you becomes a menace. Huh. So I, I find it really interesting to go different places and engage in different ways with the land and create with the land and get to know uh, the various, kind of like the various emanations or manifestations of the land's ambassadors, but through the lens of my own creation and then find the uh, similarities to the already mind culture, cultural database of these kinds of things. 
Okay. Well, it, an idea that I've played with, and I'd be interesting to get, interested to get your take on it, Michelangelo, is that um, something I try to stress to friends who say things like, oh, it's just pareidolia. Like, I, I understand that argument fully, and and uh, yeah. there's obviously, we, we see that every day, but sometimes I wonder if pareidolia isn't a yes and sort of situation. In well, other words, yes, yeah. it is your mind yeah. sort of matrixing patterns that look like faces, but you also might like that might be the literal thing that inspired people to interact with an intelligence from beyond. And it might be the way that the intelligence from beyond actually right. interacts with us is through the creation right. of, these I things. think it's, okay. it's exactly like I touched upon earlier, that suspension of disbelief moment. Like we were talking about the undiagnosed disease that you're living with and you don't know quite the reality that you're facing with it. Like similarly, I think in the pareidolic reality, you're, you know, in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., you wake up, the pile of clothes is a man sitting over there. Right. In that moment where you're kind of, uh, you're still surfacing from your dream world and the dream world is kind of seeping over, cusping over into the waking reality, you're entertaining for a moment the reality of that. So I think there's there's very much truth to what you're saying there, but also, and I just gave this presentation on this uh, idea of pareidolia as a demonic interface. Yeah. And and to, mm -hmm. give, to give kind of the talking points on it, like the main takeaway is that, oh, it's all in your head, it's just pareidolia. But here's the, here's the kicker. The faces in the clouds are not just projected into the clouds. They're, the clouds are sensorially taken in and in your brain they are processed with your own associations worked into them, then projection mapped back into the seemingly external world and glazed in a veneer of assumption so as to hide the fact from just how out there it is, showing you that Reality isn't necessarily an objective thing, but it has been objectified mm. by your subjectivity. Yeah. And so the the powerful mm -hmm. reality for me is that the it's it I, I use the example of Don Quixote, you know, the man from La Mancha, which funnily mm -hmm. enough, La Mancha means the stain. And I do this practice called stain spotting where I'll find like a street stain and then I'll outline the forms that I find in there. Mm. But th this is what I call quixotification. Because Don Quixote read so many books that he couldn't tell the difference between the reality and the reality of the literature he had taken in. And similarly, I oh. feel like I've been inflicted by synesthesia. And I don't mean the cross-wiring of the senses. I mean C-I-N-E-sthesia, the cross-wiring of reality and cinema, the mind as media idea right. again. And so the, the, the Kino eye. The what? Are you familiar with Jiga Vertov's idea of the Kino Eye? No, I'm from not. Early Soviet cinema. No, yeah, I'm... it's it's it's. I sorry to interrupt, but it just it really reminded me of that when you said that K I N O the Kino Eye. Oh, yeah. Kino, Kino. yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. German word for cinema, Kino, right. for the theater. Yeah, so it's uh, what Pareidolia reveals to us is how the world that we consider to be external and consider to be objective is actually battered in our own associations. Is, and battered is a double sense, you know, battered as in batter and also as in like, you know, assaulted. By, mm -hmm. And so, so the world is in a sense non-sensual or non-consensual, taken in by the senses, altered, and then assumed to be out there. So to say like, it's just pareidolia, it's just in your head. Well, it's all in your head <laughs> in that sense. You know, we're all in our heads and we're thinking outside of our heads. So there, I find there's something very profound about Something that can be considered inane, because Faces in the Clouds, it's a fun game as a child, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think there mm -hmm. are um, practical, magical implications to recognizing that. Because 
the distinction that I make then too is, okay, so you saw Jesus on your toast. Now, if you acknowledge that this is processed first through the brain, then you can acknowledge that Jesus isn't actually on your toast. Otherwise, you're dealing with what I'd call pareidolatry, where you've now idolized the reality that you've perceived around you as real rather than as acknowledging the wiggle room, the liminal space within that of your co-creation of this reality. Sure. Yeah, I am... It just further underscores this false dichotomy that we have internal versus external. And I don't really know what I'm basing this on, but I get the sense that the, that that barrier is breaking down a bit. Um, and just in terms of, of the climate in the room, so to speak. And I I don't really know what I have to base that on. Maybe it sort of goes to our uh, conversation that we had earlier off the mic guys about, you know, sort of consensus reality breaking down. But I, I think that is an important step to understanding a lot of these phenomena to realize that these things can be, you know, perhaps from your head, but not in your head. Um, right. And that there is sort of a, a dialogue going on bet- betwixt the two. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what's been hinted at with psi phenomena for forever. Right. Yeah. And just in general, I mean, if we're creating our own reality, that, that, that is part of that process right there. You're taking something in, you're interpreting it, and then you're putting it back out in reality. Exactly. And we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're not just creating our own reality, we're co-creating it with everyone else. Right. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. so there right. is kind of this, this vying yeah. over the, Tension. over yeah. the verity of the room, you know, if there's like. And if you want to talk about the varieties of experience and manifestation, you got to remember too that if you're doing this, you know, talking about the head, make sure your head's not up your own ass. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> called that's called uroboros, <laughs> right? But I but I I mean that seriously, and that like it's you're going to have like it's going to be you know if you're having that the the I guess you know the the state of where you are and how you're sort of um, uh, projecting yourself or you know going through this process that you very well described, Michelangelo, is that. It would be, you know, like if you're has up your own ass and you're kind of, you know, like you're you're really you're looking at being destructive or, you know, you're trying to manifest things that, um, you know, are 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 negative or you're not even thinking about manifesting things that are negative. But, you know, your outlook is in a way that, you know, uh, sort of is infringing upon other people's right to thrive. Um, right. You know, it's going to create the sort of wide variety of. Because, you know, I mean, I just take one example, abductee experience being positive and negative. True. It also puts me in the mindset, and this sort of ties back into uh, our earlier discussion about cycles, this um, this idea that Charles Fort put forth, this idea of dominance, that uh, dom- not dominance, but dominance with a T at the end. Hmm. Um, the this idea that as we progress through different ages, Things literally become true or untrue depending upon the, not only consensus reality, but yes. you know. Um, so, in other words, it's not that magic was always true and just lurking in the background for a while during the dominant of science or whatever. It it actually becomes less true, and then as we progress out of that dominant and back into a dominant of witchcraft or something, which I believe was Fort's actual term. Um, that it actually be- actually becomes more true than some of the other things that we've seen in science. And, you know, maybe that's what we're seeing with the replicability crisis. I don't know. What is the rep- replicability crisis? A staggering amount of scientific uh, findings cannot be replicated yeah. in terms of ones that are found mm-hmm. in published papers. Um, mm-hmm. I have a sense that the incidence of this is probably overstated, but there does seem yeah. to be a lot of papers that are out there that just, 
people can't replicate the results, which calls into question mm-hmm. methods and findings and all, all those things. Well, there's and I also- think some of that probably is corruption within the system. Yeah. Oh, I think you're right. Some of that very well could be sort of a Rupert Sheldrake thing. Well, there, there's a, there's also the study that was done where they, they literally took a study and put a small name on it, you know, like a small, someone without any clout, they threw it through the peer review and it was a good study that someone else had actually already had peer reviewed and it was approved and they put it through the peer review process and it got denied. Mm. And then they took one that was literally gibberish, put a big name on it, put it through the peer review process and it was approved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, didn't, didn't Ren post something in Slack a while back about a paper that was, that did get through peer review, but when the terminology was substituted with parapsychological terms, it didn't get yes. <laughs> the same yep. paper, but yep. it didn't get yeah. pushed through. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. uh, Dr. Bem's stuff from Cornell, where you know they're they're like, well, this has been peer reviewed and replicated, but we know it's not right because it proves you know precognition and stuff. So how do we get this out of the system? And that mm. kind of happened with Robert Temple too, didn't it? I mean, maybe he's I've only heard it through his own lips, but weren't, wasn't the stuff that he was speaking about the Dogon as we were the serious stuff? Wasn't that originally? It was in a fairly reputable peer-reviewed journal, first of all. Am I yeah, correct? Yeah, I, I think the problem yeah, with, yeah. with Temple stuff is that he tied it into the ancient aliens. Well, yes. He yes. didn't just he leave got it. really into Von Daniken, you're right. Yeah, he didn't just leave it with these, this culture has this knowledge they shouldn't have. He then yeah. extrapolated on it and was like, oh, it means, that's you know, true. aliens from Sirius came here and gave it to him, and that's not what they said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I like I like to think of all these things as, and I don't question the experience, it's the interpretation yes. that is yeah. called into question, you know? And that's that's the that's my argument when it comes to the paranormal, is that mm-hmm. there's no, you know, people are still trying to prove this stuff exists, and it's like, right. no, these are experiences. They're experiences that we've had as long as there's been recorded history across culture and they're just called and interpreted differently exactly. but they're the same experience so they're if nothing else they are a part of the human experience well and, and, and i would argue that trying to prove the paranormal is kind of missing the point of it i mean yes. it's almost like getting yeah. a private love letter and going around to people and saying look this person loves me and it's like no that's <laughs> that's not the point of the love letter is not to prove that somebody loves you it's it's right, like, right. like that it's a personal thing but, oh, but yeah I but there it's it's less that people are trying to prove the supernatural as much as they're trying to prove their interpretation of it. Yeah, well, it's it's the name games, and again, that idea of like the name um, being like a safety blanket, but also a limiter of yes. experience. Yes. So, like, do you believe in ghosts? We're gonna have to have a longer conversation about what you're <laughs> what you mean by that. You know, right? Uh, and it's even worse if someone says, "Do you believe in UFOs?" It's like, right? So, do I believe there are things unidentified in the sky? Is that what I, you're asking? Exactly. Oh, and we have one of those in the government, maybe somewhere locked <laughs> yeah, away yeah. in a storage unit. Okay, cool. So we know there's uh, views, cars to the stars that's cool we'll put that on the next mdv cribs but what about the drivers let's talk about one of my um one of my go-to phrases whenever people finally tease out of me that i believe in ufos is i immediately say but what you think i think is not what i think right (laughs) right yeah what you think i think is not what i think i have that at the end of my bio it says i am none of the thing he is none of the things he says he is and more (laughs) 
I think one of the bios I wrote up was basically a lot of contradictions that described me. Nice. Yeah. Michelangelo, are we sure that you're not actually Terrence McKenna? Uh, I I mean, again, we're going to have to have a longer conversation about identity (laughs) and the multitudes we contain. I mean, I'm looking Uh, at him, and honestly, he's a giant turtle. (laughs) That's right. Cowabunga, dude. Got any more pizza? He won't even exist. We'll, if, we'll talk to you tomorrow, and you'll be like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> who? He's look, a giant turtle. It's the Kafka sequel that no one wanted. Look, I'm just a man who raises the dead for a living. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> just um, a local necromancer. Everyone needs a local necromancer. Right. This is true. Yeah, and of course, the idea of necromancy, too. You know, like, when you first thing you're thinking about raising them physically from the dead. Right. But then it's like, well, right. no, they're just kind of talking to the dead. They're not, you know. Yeah. They're not physically, like, you, you'll see, like, you know, artists draw, you know, the bodies being raised as skeletons or corpses from the dead. And it's like, or you're just communicating with the dead, which then throws psychics into the same mix. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like, it's more like raising the awareness of the dead than it is raising an actual, uh, an actual body in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, talking to the dead is easy. It's getting them to talk back. That's the hard part. <laughs> yes. It's an old necromancy joke. That's <laughs> Throw that true. one in there. And then, you know, and in some sense, like, if I'm emulating the speech of Terrence McKenna, there is the same entrainment with which he spoke. And so in that sense... There is a, yeah. there is a certain raising of the dead or like bringing that frequency in, but then I don't have access to his memories or things like that. So right. I won't go around and go to like Dennis McKenna and say like, Dennis, I have a message from the bodiless beyond because that's just, then you <laughs> enter the realm of charlatanism, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you also, you know, when you say that, you don't have his memories. We have this belief that we are just our memories. You know, some people... We'll be like, well, once we can store our memories, that will be us, and we can Ugh. put it on a computer chip. And it's like, the, right. that, that's not how the, the body works. Like, right. there's more to it, and memories aren't like written on the brain like uh, hard exactly. drive. We don't even we don't even remember where we stored our memories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Go get some metaphysics. And then my my father has Alzheimer's, and he always told me he's like, if you have some money, like invested in experience, because they can't take that away from you. Well, it turns out that your memory palace can deteriorate, and then the question becomes like, so where do the memories get stored? Do they get stored in the cloud, or is it is it dispersed throughout? Like in the cheating the fairy man idea, uh, we kind of like we're dispersed almost like frames in a zoetrope throughout time so we're always in these moments at the intersection of these coordinates of our actuation these space-time coordinates so we were we are always in this conversation in this particular space and time so you can think of it like that 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 the memory is spread out throughout time in that way until we run out of memories and then it's it's done and also at times for instance if i feel called to travel somewhere i've never been and then I find myself like I went back to I went to Mexico and I recovered and remembered parts of my dismembered self in a way of my memories that I had forgotten about. So then it feels like maybe my mind got blown to smithereens at some point and parts like a scattered trash bag, parts of my memory like got stuck in a tree somewhere in the Yucatan. And then <laughs> when I got there, I got to reclaim that. So that that's the video game you're playing. You're going exactly. around the, the yes. world collecting your memories. <laughs> collecting my memories. Oh, there got away again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. We're just about out of time. 
so ungoogleable, Michelangelo. Where can people find you? Theungoogleable.com is where you find all the little portals to all the links to films, books, writings, music, and of course the social medias. And uh, Josh? Uh, it's not as good as the ungoogleable. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. I have a new novel, or my first and only novel, I suppose. Um, currently, when is this going to drop, Soraya? Uh, it might be out by this point. Uh, the end of the month. Yeah, yeah, so it's probably out by now. It's called Them Old Ways Never Died. And I think uh, listeners of Where the Road Go will be very interested in the subject matter. Are Faye involved? You know me, so like, what are the what are the Vegas odds on <laughs> Faye being involved? <laughs> Chris, where can people find your stuff? Um, all the same things. Uh, go to brightrectangle.com. Okay, and uh, Super Saxon Man. If people want to, uh, you know. I'm, I'm in the Saxon cave. You've got to use the signal to get my attention. Oh, okay. Uh, but I, I, I uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's probably the best place. And I, I'm on Facebook and I hang around the discord. So too. Awesome. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons. Without you, this show would not be possible. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Greg Ross, Billuminati. Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Tim, Matthew Sproul, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gayaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Lumina, Bright Rectangle, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet, Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, CJ, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, Linz Jackson K, MJ Armstrong, Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Ole Andre Olar, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors. Wesley, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Schmooples, Devourer of Mortal Souls, Seed Person 1, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Deller Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Varoshke, Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT Skunkworks, A Crocodile, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much. There is a Patreon segment to go along with this show that will be up later for Patreons. I want to thank some new Patreons, Janet Shaw Bins, Mark Bowley, and 36 Dingo. And if you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. And uh, you can do so at wheredidtheroadgo.com by clicking on the big Patreon link. You can also find everything Where Did The Road Go related there. Uh, and if you're into heavy music, check out my music show that's at thelastexit.org. All right. To take you out tonight, we're going to hear something from the Brothers of the Serpent and their band, $50 Dynasty. Of their procession album. This is our immortality. See you next time.
You have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.